Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third season of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. Storytelling is our most powerful tool for changing anything in the world today. This compelling quote from one of my upcoming guests, Holly Gordon, sums up my aspirational goal for this podcast, sharing stories to change you, your leadership, your team, your company. As an executive coach and leadership strategist for over 20 years, I've come to know and work with some pretty incredible people. This podcast is designed to share their inspiring stories and practical ideas you can use to develop yourself as a leader and as a person. Thank you for supporting me in this podcast. If you've listened to an episode and felt its impact, could you tell someone about it? Maybe forward an episode, post about it on social, or text someone who might be interested in listening. If you could share just one, I'd be grateful. My guest today serves as Chief Investment Officer and Head of Commercial Real Estate Debt for a large asset management firm. Overseeing nearly $6 billion in committed capital, Peter has worked in real estate, securitization, and financial services for over 20 years. Peter is the type of leader who instinctively forms his leadership philosophy and approach, and then realizes there are a few books out there that back up those instincts. Peter's leadership analogies range from parenthood, tennis, golf, political ideologies, and through his metaphors, we gain some fabulous insights. As we become more flexible in our workplace, it applies to flexibility in your thinking and in your approach to people, is this country is built on freedom. I'm going really big here, but this country is built on freedom. But I think what can get lost is with freedom comes massive personal responsibility. You have to show up, you have to do your bit. No one's telling you, no one's dropping an edict on you to say, do this, do that. Life's much easier when people do drop edicts on you because yeah. you follow the rules. So we could go from one end of the scale where we say, here's what you do, which is how I grew up in the workplace. And you follow those rules and you work hard and it's fine, right? You don't have to do yeah. it thinking, you just process. The other end of the spectrum, I don't want to prescribe a dress code for you. I don't want to prescribe a work from home, return to the office program for you. I want you to buy into the same premise that I have, which is we are here to do our best work together. And if I don't prescribe something, it means you have to have as high a personal responsibility for contributing to that as I do. And therefore, I'm expecting you to show up like that every day. It means you're a part of that community. And communities, by definition, are not about the self, they're about the community. Yeah. It becomes somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy because why would you want to let the side down? If you empower people, if you give them agency to do something, they will take it and do yeah. it better than if you just tell them what to do. Peter Gordon, thank you so much for being on my show. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. We started working together, I believe it was September 2020 which was right at the point that we resigned ourselves to the fact that the pandemic had officially taken over our lives. And I think it was maybe six months before that, that you had taken on the role that you're in now. Part of the reason that I liked working with you is the way you thought about leadership, the way you thought about your relationships at work, and honestly, how open you are to talking about and uncovering your blind spots and figuring out the things that could be holding you back. And you're the kind of person who's comfortable in your own skin, yet open to new ways of thinking and doing things. I'm also excited because we're going to do something new on the show, and I'm going to interview your wife, Holly. And the reason that I wanted to do that is because when we were working together, I got the sense that your partnership with Holly was not only meaningful to you, but that the conversations you had with her and have with her 
really have an impact on the way you approach leadership and think about it. I feel like she's your thought partner and I really wanted to bring you guys on to talk about how that works in your relationship. And I bet a lot of people would like to have some insight as to how that works. Before we start, maybe you could tell me a little bit about your role, chief investment officer and head of a debt strategy at a large asset management firm. So maybe tell me a little bit about your role and why you enjoy it. It's a deep and complex question, but I think at the fundamental core of it, what gets me up in the morning is working with people who I like towards a shared goal. And it sounds easy to say, it sounds trite to say it sometimes because it's a phrase that's used often, but I think I really have begun to believe it as I live it. Saying it and waking up in the morning and seeing other people and seeing the energy that they bring, and then that they will share a meeting about something and take away and be energized by something. The reflected glory of other people's successes, all of those things just have become such an important part of what gets me up in the morning. And I think it probably began as a parent Mm -hmm. without knowing it, that your life shifts from being about you to being about something bigger than you. When you start to manage people, it starts to bleed into how you do that too. And you care more about their successes at the end of the day than you care about your own successes because you know that we're all motivated by that. And if they're seeing it, meaning people who work with you in the team, self-drive is going to come. And then it feels like riding a bike. It's relatively easy. You just keep pedaling. When you think back to earlier in your career, does that surprise you that that's something that gets you up in the morning? Is that anything you would have anticipated I'm slightly surprised every morning I get up. I said to someone the other day, I was like, when we'd had a particularly hard day, and I was like, is there ever a day where you're not learning? Because it's exhausting. And he said to me, he goes, yes, the day you walk out and you get knocked over by a bus. And I was like, okay, so I guess we're learning every day. The realization of that and the management of that, the learning is actually, while it's painful, very quickly turns into satisfaction and enjoyment. And some of it's retrospective. It's not pleasant in the moment. But when you're looking back on it, you realize that you've just opened yourself up to something and you've expanded your horizons a little bit and you're thinking a little bit differently than you were the day before. We started off before we started recording, just catching up with each other and talking about how you're doing, Pete, has life gone back to how it was before? It's exhausting. And I think you have to sort of revel in that exhaustingness and enjoy it. There's a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And I think if you're not enjoying that process, it's very arduous on physical and mental health. So I think that's an important thing as we get older, And you have consciousness about these things, which I think comes with age to some degree. I think you have to learn how to enjoy that part of the process to keep yourself healthy. Yeah, it's easy to talk about learning as being fun and, oh, isn't it great to learn and all that? But usually learning is painful. (laughs) And if it's not painful, it certainly takes a lot of energy, if nothing else. Yeah, Peter, you've had a lot of learning moments and a lot of times in your career where it was an opportunity to really learn. But what comes to mind that you think people would learn something from you through what you've learned as you think about your leadership and you think about your career? Well, that's a good question. I actually don't ever really give that a lot of thought. I try to distill in my own head down, and I've operated this way because as I've been leading people, it's helped me articulate what I think are my strengths. And my tendency is to look at other people and always see the strengths in them And has been at times devalue my own strengths and think like, well, what am I bringing to this dinner party, right? As Again, like we talked about, as you get older and as you have children, as you step away from yourself and you think about other people and how to bring them into the conversation, it's that part that I think I do 
maybe with more ease than other people do. The ability to bring them to the table and not be worried about what people are thinking about me, but recognizing in other people how, like, I know you've got a strength that I don't have. How can I harness that, right? How can I bring it in and see it flourish and see it in operation? Because without it, we're just, as a collective, we're going to be less. That's my sort of opening Salvo, when I meet someone for the first time and I'm curious about them and I'm watching them and I'm observing them and I'm seeing how they contribute and whatever it is, it's how do I add that to the whole to make the whole again bigger? And I think I'm not done. Learning and leadership is every day. And I think I change a little bit every day in terms of how I lead. But I think at the moment, I definitely don't bring the highest IQ to the table, but I try to bring a high EQ to the table in terms of bringing people in, making them feel welcome, understanding where they're going to contribute. If you just think about it at a very fundamental human level, if we are comfortable, right, in our place, and if we're not threatened physiologically or mentally, then you do your best work. You're most willing to push the boundaries. You're most willing to say something that comes top of mind. It's not preconceived. It's not thought about. You're just sharing. And if you can get people to share in that environment where they're not threatened, then you'll probably get the best work. It requires people to be open to the idea that what they share might not actually be that useful, but and it might go in a different direction. But again, that's all part of being comfortable and not criticized for your contribution, but just letting the creative process go where it is. And whatever we're doing, and I know we, we talk a lot about creative process. I mean, what I do is not creative in the sort of artistic creative sense, but we do think about problem solving all the time. And there's an element of creativity in problem solving. I really like that. You named a couple of things that you do to demonstrate EQ. And it sounds like EQ for you feels like not only the part of the value that you bring to the team, but it sounds like it's the glue that holds the team together and helps people bring their best selves and do their best work. Could you be maybe more specific about how you do that and what you actually do to cultivate that with the team or with people? Yeah, I'm going to use a sports analogy, but it's not a sports. It's more of an athletic sort of analogy. The metaphor that I use in my head, if you think about a tennis racket, and if you grip the tennis racket too tightly, your swing changes, your flow changes, and your shot comes out differently. If you learn how to moderate your grip, then you tend to get a better result out of the tennis racket. That's the analogy that works for me in terms of how to manage is a grip tight or less tight. And I try to use my intuition to know when to loosen that grip or tighten that grip. And I've run into problems with this too, where I have quote unquote clumsily said something that was not intended to be clumsy, but someone else has felt thwarted by it or put out by it, or they think it's a shot across from me to them, but it's really just me to sort of redirect the conversation and keep it going in the direction that I think it should be going in. So it doesn't always work, but I think this ability to loosen and tighten the grip on something allows you to have a better feel for it. If you're gripping so tightly, you don't feel what's happening in the tennis racket with the ball. If you're gripping too loosely, you lose the grip of the tennis racket and you hit a bad shot. There's somewhere in between that you're playing with. And it's a group of humans we're talking about in terms of working together. It's a constantly evolving, changing thing. And you just have to be aware of it. You use all sorts of the typical human tricks like humor self-deprecation, teasing, anything to sort of get people to feel like they're recognized and they're not just joining as person number three in the group, but they're joining as Winnie De Silva. You're Winnie De Silva. You want to be Winnie De Silva. There's a sense I get from you helping people feel like they belong. Seems like something that's important to you and what you do with your team. 
There was an expression that someone used way back in my days when I worked for big bulge bracket bank and said it in a derogatory fashion, but I liked it. And I now use it with pride, which is the land of the misfit toys. <laughs> and I like existing in the land of the misfit toys because it means that there's a lot of different toys there that bring something different to the mix. So you don't want everyone to be type A. You don't want everyone to be producing in a certain way and a linear thought process. But you do need people like that to do certain tasks and get it done well and get it done efficiently. And so it's the land of misfit toys where everyone brings something. I'm curious when you realize that EQ was something that you did as a leader or you recognize that that was important? Did it evolve for you like, oh, I need to be more intentional about doing it? We talked about at the beginning about leadership is a constant learning experience too. And I feel like I'm so early on my journey of learning what it is to learn. And definitely wasn't for me opening a door and saying, oh, here's leadership, you can do it. And I don't think it's an on-off switch. I think it is something that comes from your life experiences, the culmination of the things people have said to you along the way, the experiences you've had, the reactions you have. It's such a complicated composite of things that make up people, which is why it's so interesting. And I think that there are some people who are thrust into leadership at a young age, generally because their IQ is exceptional or a specific talent is exceptional. And therefore, because of whatever field they're in, they're leading on the exception clause. And then there are people like me who I'd say don't have an exceptional skill, but are leading now because of a composite of experiences that have led them to get to this point. And so I think you have to sort of establish what kind of a leader you are and at what time in your life. And I bet if you talk to Bill Gates, for example, there's a good example of someone we all know who started leading because of an exceptional quality early on. But I bet he became a better leader as time went on, as he saw the product of his mistakes and was able to reflect and inflect on them, etc. So I think it can be looked at in a number of different ways. I think the way I've come into it, it's definitely through a composition of my experiences over life. Now I'm in finance and in financial services, and I manage money for big institutional investors. But I started my life as a construction manager, which was a challenge in and of itself. And I didn't know how valuable it was at the time. In fact, I was slightly embarrassed about my job relative to all my banker friends or whatever they were doing. But my job as a 22, 23-year-old was managing 40-year-old union workers who had been in the trade for 20 years. Yeah, It was nothing relative to that. Yeah. And I had to use right. whatever obvious skills I had to get them to do what I wanted them to do because my job was part of the management team of a construction site. I practiced using the skills that I think I had intrinsically, which is to be likable and want to let people to like you and those sort of just basic level skills and an enjoyment of interacting with people. I had to deploy them in a way that got the results that I needed despite having almost no experience in the field. And so that was a good training without knowing it that I think if I look back on now, I still used it. Then I went into finance and for probably the next 10 years, used very little of my management skills because it was an execution-oriented job and very much of transaction. And could you get the transaction done and how do you do it? Now I'm sort of combining both of those elements of my life experience in my management technique. So it's almost like your time in construction management, some seeds were planted that you later turned back to after some time in finance, once you got to the point of leading others, even though you had that taste of it really early in your career. Yeah, I loved it at the beginning, but it was every day was like, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was just right. working however I could to get someone to do something. And you'd learn to be very humble 
because you really have nothing relative to someone who's been doing their job for 20 years. I worked for a construction management firm. And that's a really fun industry because people are very proud of what they do, which they should be because you can see it on the land, the skyscraper, right? Yes. Yeah. One of my favorite construction management stories is across different industries, people have catchphrases they all use and mantras. And in construction, the, the best thing is everyone from the broom pusher to the architect, to the construction manager, to the carpenter, to the steel guy, to the whatever it is will say when they walk past the building that they worked on, oh, I built that building. Right? And they did. They did. They had a role in it. You personalize it because it makes you feel better, but they did have a role in it for sure. The thing about it too is that there's just so much legacy because how long do those buildings last? Usually forever, not always, but you know, a long time. I just think it's yeah. a really cool industry. But now you're tackling it from another side, which is interesting. Yeah. I'm curious, and I don't know if I know this about you, but you were talking earlier about contributions that people make and experiences that you've had. Is there a particular experience or spike in your career of how that contributed to you and how you think about yourself as a leader? I can't think of one event that's really changed the course. We all live inside our own world to some degree. So in my world, I'm very comfortable that it's, I've said to my parents, aren't you glad I didn't peak in high school? Aren't you <laughs> glad I didn't peak in college? And aren't you glad I didn't peak in my 20s or my 30s? I'm going to peak when I get to 60. Right. It'll be a journey up. I think it's just <laughs> been a culmination. I think there there have been lots of things. You're going to talk to Holly. If I think about my people around me, who have had most influence, maybe that's a different way to tackle the question. Yeah. Five of the six have been strong women. I'm talking about two sisters, a mother, a daughter, a wife, have had major influence okay. on my life. My son and my father, obviously, as well. But in today's day and age, where equality and equity and diversity and inclusion are all becoming words that we live and breathe, and we're breaking down some of the norms of the past to get yeah. to a more inclusive world having had that kind of a background is really helpful. And again, you talk to Holly, but one of the things, she is a thought partner of mine and we do share a lot. We think so differently. The thought partner as a phrase sounds so good. It can be so painful at times. <laughs> right. Neither of us is afraid to say what we're thinking. And we've had some real verbal clashes about things. It's everything from we use different ways to express things how we prioritize things is different, how we come at things. And when you come at things so different, I mean, it's, thank goodness we're married to each other. She's married to me by contract. She can't just walk away from it. <laughs> it's tough. We've worked through an awful lot. And through the pandemic, you talk about things that have good that have come out of that. Most of the days we walked an hour in the morning with a dog. You get a lot done in that when your devices are down. So as people contemplate their own, which I hope your podcast is doing, is making people think about how they lead it's nice to hear other people's path, but they're all very different. Yes. You can listen to a lot because you can take things. It's like philosophies in life. If you live by one philosophy, it's going to fail you at some point because the philosophies don't last forever and they don't work in every situation. You need a bunch of them to put together to say, okay, well, the circumstances have changed. I need a different philosophy. And I think leadership is the same. I, I think you look at a lot of different leaders and you say, I like the way that person did that or thought about that. That's something I'm going to add to my bag of tricks and how I might approach a problem or think about something. Exactly. For me, it has been a composition of people's influence over me that I would say is probably the most important. Why do you think the women in your life growing up and as an adult, why do you think they had such an impact? Was there something in particular about women in your life that gave you insight? I think some of it is circumstance. I had two sisters, older, both 
very bright, much brighter than I was, and maybe not as self-confident as I was in some cases, but they just brought different things. They really cared. For me, I had three mothers growing up, was maybe what pushed me to come to the US from the UK. (laughs) But I'm incredibly close with them all. And then I have a wife who's very accomplished and who is a very clear articulator of what she thinks and has strong views. And that was no accident that I married her. I needed someone who was strong to offset me. And then we have a daughter who's equally as bullheaded as I am and has that. But I think she will end up being more like me because she leads with her EQ as opposed to her IQ. I think some of it was circumstance and some of it was just they brought something to the table. I'm really a big fan of complementary skills to what I have. I always admire the skills in people that I don't have. I'm very attracted to that because I think at my core, it's about creating complements of skills to create a better whole. And I think when you see someone who has the same skills as you, you're much more critical of them because you see them and you see them through the same lens and you understand how they're being deployed and worked and used. And I'm always attracted to skills that I don't have. Do you think that ends up sometimes causing more conflict? They say about teams in particular, if you've got a bunch of people who think alike or have similar strengths, they work well together and it's easy, but they don't necessarily always get to the most innovative solutions. But if you've got a team that has diversity of thought, diversity of like approach, bring different skill sets, they may not be able to work easily together, but their solutions are more creative and innovative. Do you find that to be true? And if you do, I'm curious how you manage that potential conflict and (laughs) inherent to that. I think fundamentally you need the difference in skills. I think then there's a layer of personality type on top of that, regardless of the skills, which says either I'm comfortable sharing, I'm comfortable being wrong, I'm comfortable someone else's idea may take and that's okay, but I'm going to share anyway. And they understand the flow of a group and how a group dynamic works, then I think it can work incredibly well. But I think if you have the different personality types and someone doesn't want to share is feeling threatened, is feeling physiologically out of sorts, then the clashes are much more pronounced and actually might go misunderstood. Yeah. Our natural reaction in fight or flight is to sort of say, well, that person's making me feel this way and therefore I'm reacting to it that way. And then you get into these spirals and it takes a lot of work to actually unpick those things. And it takes a lot of work in a marriage to unpick those things, right? And you have a lifelong commitment to each other. But in work, it's really difficult because you don't give time to those relationships in the same way that you do elsewhere. So I think that's why it's incumbent on all of us to sort of tread a little bit more cautiously into work relationships. I had this realization with a couple of people that I work with. You were the one that actually put words to it, which is my style of thinking is out loud. I need to verbalize it so that it's real. I need to get it out on the table. So, and then I need to move the pieces around until I have concluded on what the right direction is or what I think the right direction is. And some people in me asking questions to get the information out or challenging things in the way that I do have felt like I'm not really trusting what they're saying or some reaction like that. And so that's forced me to course correct at times and to say to them, look, just let me go through this. This is my style. I need to get it out on the table. I need to talk about it with you. I completely trust you. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't trust you, but I need to do it so that I can get to the right answer. And I need to hear it in my brain because that's how my brain processes things. My wife can think in her brain, she likes to say she can hold eight things in her brain and have them all operate at the same time. And I'm like, you're conflating risks and ideas and all the things she'll say to me, okay, but you may be only capable of keeping one thing. (laughs) 
but I can keep eight things going. It's okay. I think there's recognizing both of those types of processing exist. Yes. Is the step forward to making that complementary skill set work better together. I've worked on that and I've been aware of that thanks to my time with you and also thanks to my time speaking to Holly. And yep, I see that. And now I need to sort of be aware of it. It's the things we're not aware of that really trip us up all the time. Right. I like your whole thing. And I know we definitely talked about this is just telling people what's happening (laughs) because you talk about awareness for ourselves, like when we're aware of something, but when we can make other people aware of what's happening. That's a power. It is. There's definitely something you bring into these to make people feel included. Yeah. And I did want to come back to that because a word that I know people are using a lot, which I think describes what you're saying is creating psychological safety. And that EQ and, and psychological safety, you as a leader are creating that for other people, but you're also creating it for yourself <laughs> so that you can be honest about what your process is or how you're feeling or how it's going. So it's not just for others, it's for you so that you can be vulnerable and talk about yourself in a way that's helpful for other people to understand who you are. The other thing I liked about what you said too is building relationships and you can't build the kind of relationship that you'd build with your wife, Holly, as you would with people on your team. Although I know that that's something that you both enjoy doing and you're committed to doing is building those relationships, but that's part of creating that psychological safety as well, I imagine. Yeah, this is a little bit tangential, but hopefully it'll be relevant. Holly does a lot more work around these things than I do, and she's read a lot more books than I have and understands all these words like psychological safety. And it's not that I don't understand what they mean, but there's a lot of highfalutin intellectual stuff that goes into this. And again, you have to sort of bring it back to what is practical and what's workable and what everyone understands. And I consider myself to be middle of the pack IQ wise, and therefore I've got to make it mean something to me. Psychological safety... It does mean something to me now, but when I first heard that expression, I was like, what? You know, what does that mean, right? It's a much bigger thing generally, but I've started talking about it in our group as we become more flexible in our workplace. And I think it applies to flexibility in your thinking and in your approach to people is this country is built on freedom. I'm going really big here, but this country is built on freedom. But I think what can get lost is with freedom comes massive personal responsibility. You have to show up. You have to do your bit. No one's telling you, no one's dropping an edict on you to say, do this, do that. Life's much easier when people do drop edicts on you because you follow the rules. So we've gone through it with going back and working from home and returning to the office and dress code and perfunctory things. I used the analogy of freedom and personal responsibility as a scale. So we could go from one end of the scale where we say, here's what you do, which is how I grew up in the workplace. Like do this, do that, do this, do that. And you follow those rules and you work hard and it's fine, right? You don't have to do it thinking, you just process. The other end of the spectrum, which is I don't want to prescribe a dress code for you. I don't want to prescribe a work from home, return to the office program for you. I want you to buy into the same premise that I have, which is we are here to do our best work together. And if I don't prescribe something, it means you have to have as high a personal responsibility for contributing to that as I do. And therefore, I'm expecting you to show up like that every day. And how do you recruit for that, right? (laughs) Right, because that's a higher level skill than just checking their resume. When you package it up with, are you in a place where people respect you? Are you in a place where your voice is heard? Are you in a place, all those things that are lacking generally? 
And that doesn't mean your voice is heard. I spoke, therefore my voice must be taken as it is, right? It just means you're a part of that community. And communities, by definition, are not about the self. They're about the community. Yeah. So when you package it up with how do you respect people? How do you champion people? How do you recognize the good work they're doing? It becomes somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy because why would you want to let the side down? When it might make some people cringe, it's kind of a libertarian thesis, which is if you empower people, if you give them agency to do something, they will take it and do yeah. it better than if you just tell them what to do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Before we started recording, we were talking about creating an entrepreneurial spirit in large organizations. And how do you do that? What does that look like? Why do you do it? Maybe you could link that to what we were just talking about. Yeah, it's very much linked to that. It is the feeling that, and my boss does it to me, which I really appreciate, which is, I would say he's like a parent in the crowd watching you play sport in middle school. He's cheering you. He's like, great. I love it. It's enthusiastic. It's not focusing on the stuff that you're doing badly because you know you're doing it badly. Yeah, <laughs> You know what's not worked and what hasn't, and you try to correct that yourself. That's the beginning of it. And it crystallized more for me with my children that we live in a very competitive world and overparenting is a problem right now. And we all who have younger children all suffer from the, I don't know whether it's driven by desire for reflected glory or the desire for your children to extend your own brand or whatever it is, but it's not always in their interest, right? And we can overparent and we send our children to a school that's relatively academic and we called them and would say, hey, how are your grades? And that would be one of the first questions we asked. And my daughter said to me early on, she goes, dad, you do not need to ask me that question. I am fully aware of where I sit in the class, of exactly the marks I'm getting, of the relative importance of it. Just listed off all these things. And I was like, wow, <laughs> not asking that question. So we don't ask that question anymore. And it's not because we don't care. We do care. But actually what it turned into was a greater level of importance placed on, does it make you happy? Because if it makes them happy, the children in this case, then they will go back and get more. It is Pavlovian in that sense, where you will go back and get more, you will do better in your grades, you will set yourself higher goals. It'll be a success begets success or a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think that is true of the workplace too. And I've said to the people I work with, I said, I'm actually using skills that I try to use in parenting, not because I feel like I'm the parent here, but because it's worked and it works for me. And I've given them an example of how it comes back to that grip thing again. Yeah, There's enough pressure around your grip that you feel that someone is there and cares, but it's not so tight that it's asphyxiating or it's changing your behavior or changing the shape of things. So I work in a big organization now and I have found that that empowerment, that agency that I'm given has been incredibly enlightening and uplifting to me. And I tried to do the same thing because I think if you empower people, you can do more with fewer people. And if you're dropping a structure on something that's quite restrictive, you have to have that machine really perfectly honed. And in the changing, evolving workplace, do you really want something that's that structural? You need some structure. I'm not advocating for sort of nothing. But I think in the swing of the pendulum, certainly in financial services, we've come from a very restrictive sort of environment to something where I think we'll get more out of people. And look, I have an ulterior motive as well, which is retention. If I can make people happy, then I am more likely to retain people as well as being better at their job. And that retention factor saves a lot of frictional cost. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I was literally just looking at a title for a Harvard Business Review article, and it said something like, people don't want flexibility, they want autonomy, autonomy to make decisions for themselves. And not just about staying at home or not staying at home, but where and when and how to work. And I feel like that's what you're talking about. And so how do you align the stars around good talent, good intentions, how you empower someone to be able to feel like they can be autonomous, but still feel like you're there supporting them, that you've still given them enough structure. That's the point about we are a community in whatever group you're working. When I went to business school, one of the first things that came up in a management class was if you could do it yourself, you would do it yourself because it's much easier. You're here at business school. And the reason you are relearning some skills to go back out into the world is because you can't do it on your own. And therefore, you need to do it with other people. The autonomy comment is fine, but it can't go without the piece that the goes community. with it, which is the community. And so if you don't want to be part of a community, then you can truly be autonomous. But that means you're working automatically. You're working your own if you translate that word, right? I wouldn't use the word autonomy. I haven't read the article you're talking about, but I will if you send it to me and we can talk about it again. But I think it's more about agency and having a degree of control The other thing we talk about in our group at the moment is, my dad said it to me a lot, be a leader, be a leader, leadership. And it felt like it always had a capital L, right? Which made it sort of unapproachable and initially made me sort of want to spurn it because I was like, I didn't want to do something that was being told to me and had a capital L in front of it. And now I think leadership has a small L in front of it. And I think everybody has an ability to lead in wherever they are. And so even the most junior person in a group or the least experienced person in a group has the ability to lead to the people up to say, this is what I can do. And I'm leading you into giving me more to do because I can handle it. And that's leadership too. And that's reverse leadership is really important, right? Because now you start to bring the group really together in a different way. And that bleeds into personal responsibility. Those things have sort of become merged. That is what is the root of so many ills and so many of the symptoms we're seeing in the world, whether it's it's a lot more complex and I'm not trying to go off topic here, but some of the unrest that's happening and it's this lack of agency and lack of feeling like I'm contributing or doing something relevant. You can't do that writ large across big swaths. You have to do it in the small environments in which we work in, but the skills are the same and they're important to bring. Yeah. It's interesting talking about the tension between agency and community and those both being really important because I think you're, you're right. A lot of the things that are happening in our society, in our world today is this lack of agency, but also the lack of community and support that you feel or you would want to feel in order to feel like you have that agency. I don't know. I just feel like agency and community go together pretty tightly. One of the things as I go deeper into leadership and my journey in that is that I've let go of myself and my own things, but it's allowed me to see, reflect on the comments that others make in community settings and group settings and say, wow, that's coming from a very personal perspective. Yeah, There's something more behind that comment. I can't just take the comment on the surface because there's something else that's driving that person to say that comment because it's all about them, Yeah, not about anyone else at this table. Yeah, And then it gives you that cue to go and explore why that is or what's going wrong on that particular person is seeing how the comments become less about the group and more about themselves, right? And that's just a very obvious cue. Peter, what I really like about you is the way that you bring in different frameworks and different stories and different ways of thinking. But what didn't we talk about that maybe we could just to wrap up? What would you like to leave people with? 
I don't know that I want to leave anyone with anything because I think in leadership, I'm always fascinated by hearing other people's story because I might just take one little nugget from that and apply it to mine. And then it's just gotten that much better. Yes. Whether it's via marketing or via expectation or something in the last 20 years, like our expectation that we'll open the door and something behind will be perfect is just not what leadership's about. It, you've asked me this before, but what's your biggest challenge? I mean, it's every day you have to bring it. Yeah. And I think you have to really enjoy and celebrate the small little victories and not dwell too long on the things that go wrong because stuff goes wrong all the time. That's right. I think that's probably what I would say is what keeps me waking up is that, right? Is the ability to be happy about other people's little things, just little things that go right. I'm like, wow, that was a good day. Yeah. Again, I'm going to use a sports analogy, which I said I don't do, but I do, which is golf. And the metaphor is you can have a horrible round. And I love golf. I'm sorry to admit, but I absolutely love it as a sport. You can have a horrible round. You can hit one shot. It's all that matters. That one shot frames that round. And you just remember it. You remember the feeling, the coming together of all those complicated moves that golf is, a composition of very small movements together. And so much can go wrong, but when it all comes together correctly, it feels amazing. My mother is a golfer too. She had an expression, I'm going to leave people to guess what it is, which is, yes, I don't want to go into it because it's my mother. (laughs) But she used to say, when I hit the golf ball well, it's better than a triple O. (laughs) (laughs) I want to meet your mother. I never wanted to ask what that was. And once I did, I was like, I wish I had not question. <laughs> I think we need to bring your mom onto the podcast. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winita Silva. Could you take a few minutes to provide a rating or write a comment on Apple Podcasts? Also reach out to me at www.winniedasilva.com to learn more about my work in executive coaching, leadership development, and team effectiveness. If you have your own story of overcoming a leadership challenge you'd like to share, please email me at winnie at Maybe I'll even have you on my show. Thanks so much.